The theme of this Bible school is the fall of the flesh to the triumph of the spirit. Our speaking brother this morning is Nathan Lewis giving his fifth class, The Banquet. His title series is Esther, the Queen of Destiny. Brother Nathan. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I know that all of you have arisen early this morning, eager to see Haman swing. And uh, it was remarked to me as I came in this morning that uh, that a certain brother was keen to uh, get to this point in the story. And he said that that, uh, Haman didn't really drop as far as Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, but he still dropped a fair way, and it's true, isn't it? He was going to come down from a massive height today and, and really be dispensed with by God himself. And so now we come to, I suppose we should really call the crux of the story, the, the destruction of Haman, the banquet, the second banquet of wine. And you'll remember that we left our, our story with, with Mordecai emerging from the king's gate as the perfect representation, the perfect manifestation of the king himself, of God in the heavens, riding the king's horse, dressed in the king's clothes, with the king's crown, looking for all the world like the king himself. And poor old Haman had been publicly humiliated in the worst possible way as he was forced to parade Mordecai through the streets of Shushan. But brothers and sisters, it was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. Much, much worse is yet to come. And we pick up the story where we left off in chapter 6 and verse 12. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered You know, we can just imagine uh, Mordecai's thoughts, can't we, brothers and sisters, as he rode through that city. He'd probably be thinking awfully like our Lord Jesus Christ was in Matthew 21, when he likewise rode into another city, into the city of Jerusalem, and the people would throw down the, the palm branches before him, and the city streets rang with his praises, But our Lord Jesus Christ's thoughts, brothers and sisters, were not on the glorious ticker tape parade, but on the terrible coming judgments that were going to engulf that nation in AD 70. And Mordecai would have been just the same as he was paraded through the city, just like our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 21. It was all very nice and encouraging, but... But death and destruction still awaited all the Jews. And so we see that Mordecai came again to the king's gate. He was straight back into working for his king. No fuss, no bother. There were much bigger, much darker problems on the horizon. And however nice it was to be serenaded through the streets of Shushan by Haman, the Jews' enemy... Haman's diabolical decree still stood. But Haman, well, he scurried home, no doubt through the back streets, brothers and sisters, with a paper bag over his head. He was so embarrassed. He could have wished that the ground would swallow him up. And the roles, brothers and sisters, just like that, were reversed. Mordecai in chapter 4 verse 1 had previously sat mourning in the king's gate with sackcloth and ashes on his head at Haman's decree. And now at Mordecai's elevation, Haman is now the one mourning with his head covered and the covering of Haman's head by himself with his own paper bag, as it were, is just the incipient fulfillment of what we're going to read of later today in chapter 7 and verse 8 the covering of Haman's face by the king. The absolute 
annihilation of sin. And what Haman did in chapter 6 and verse 12 and covering his own head was just an incipient fulfillment of all that was to happen later that day. Haman was well and truly on the slippery path down, was he not? And you know, brothers and sisters, I think there's a terrible lesson in this for us because can you imagine Mordecai mourning in the king's gate, crying and crying and crying like we know he was? But just like that, brothers and sisters, God is able to reverse all our fortunes. And when it seems like everything is lost and the wicked seem destined to triumph, when it doesn't even look like our Lord Jesus Christ is even going to return, just like that, everything can change. We need to learn to trust, don't we, brothers and sisters, that even when things look awfully, awfully bad, in just a moment of time, the glories of the kingdom can be here because God is able to reverse our fortunes. We saw that from in our last session from Isaiah 61. You remember that we looked at those verses very quickly in verses 2 and 3 when God was able to turn the ashes of Mordecai into beauty, to turn his mourning into joy and his heaviness into praise. And God is able to turn the way of the wicked upside down, it says in Psalm 146 and verse 9. God is able to turn the way of the wicked upside down. And now Haman has his head covered. And he went his way full of shame and a fearful sense of foreboding. And in verse 13, he meets up with his wife, Zeresh, and his friends again. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, And all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. It's like a Gamaliel kind of prediction, is it not? And you can just imagine it, can't you, brothers and sisters? Through the paper bag, Haman will poke a couple of holes and tell his friends and wife what a rotten morning he's had. Except it doesn't call them his friends anymore, does it? It calls them his wise men. You know, at first, back in chapter 5, verse 14, We read, uh, I think it was just yesterday, they are all for Haman. Haman, you're amazing. You're the greatest. The multitude of your riches, the multitude of your children, you are absolutely fantastic. But now they're singing quite a different tune. Now, when Haman's begun to fall, they're going to tell him, we knew all along. We're wise men. It's all over, Haman. If you are found to be fighting against the seed of the Jews, then it's all over. And now suddenly his friends are full of wisdom. I want you to come to Numbers chapter 24. We don't know this for sure, but the remnants of the Babylonian Magi, started by the great Daniel himself, probably filtered down into the echelons of Persian society. And it could well be, brothers and sisters, that even though we are significantly after the time of Daniel, that the wisdom of Daniel has percolated down into the next empire. He was, after all, still a great man in the Persian Empire under Cyrus. And it could well be that these wise men, these advisors of Haman, were the top wise men in the country. Maybe they were educated by Daniel himself or one of Daniel's protégés. And if they were, then maybe they knew of these words in Numbers 24. And look at these words, the prophecy of Balaam, verse 3. Then Balaam said... The man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said which heard the words 
of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance and having his eyes open. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. As the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the river's side, as the trees of ling arrows, which Yahweh hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters, he shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and Israel's king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Verse 17. I am dropping the words in, in, uh, in verse 17, which shouldn't be there in the original. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever. And maybe, brothers and sisters, the wise men of Haman knew that the seed of the Jews would be higher than Agag and would cause Amalek to perish forever. Come to Isaiah chapter 61, because it could be that they also knew of this little prophecy in Isaiah 61. We've already looked at a couple of verses here in, in this chapter. The turning of beauty into ashes and joy into mourning giving the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, verse 3, that we just referenced a moment ago. But look what it says in Isaiah 61 and verse 9. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which Yahweh hath blessed. And you notice what Zeresh said? She didn't say, did she? If you've started to fall before the Jews, she said, if you have started to fall before the seed of the Jews. And the elevation of Mordecai from ashes and mourning to beauty and praise would also signify the great elevation of the Jewish nation. God would always bless this people. They are the seed which Yahweh hath blessed. And maybe Zeresh and these suddenly wise counselors knew of some of these things. And they prophesied to Haman, Haman, it's all over. You can imagine the tender-hearted Zeresh loving her husband. It's all over, honey. What a lovely wife she was. And before Haman can say, but, 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 but how do you know? How do you know that I'm going to fall? How can you be absolutely sure? We read in verse 14 that while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. You remember that we said that from this moment on, or from at least... Earlier in uh, chapter 5, verse 7, the king is ensuring that Haman is making haste. Making haste. Chapter 6, verse 10, make haste, Haman. Chapter 6, verse 14, the chamberlain said, make haste. And God does not give Haman a second to get his thoughts together. And so now, significantly more miserable than when he first arrived home, Haman is hasted to the banquet and events are compounding together to bring about his demise. You know, brothers and sisters, it's only when you read the story again and again that you notice little details. But did you notice that in chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains. You know, the king is the most powerful monarch in the world. And up until now, every commandment has only needed one 
of the king's chamberlains. But now we have king's chamberlains, plural. All the angels are anxious that this story be over and Haman be destroyed. And they hasted him off to the banquet, a marvelous drama. And now it's going to come to an unbelievable climax. We come to chapter 7, the story of the second banquet of wine. You know, it's a simple scene, isn't it, brothers and sisters? There's only three characters, the king, his bride, and the diabolos. Three quite different characters with three quite different moods. The king is content that earlier in the morning he has just repaid a faithful servant of the realm by giving him his due reward. Haman is preoccupied and worried and tense. And Esther is serene and calm. No doubt she's been informed of the parade of Mordecai through the streets of Shushan and she now knows exactly where the king's sympathies lie. She's confident of the king's position. And we find again that it is a banquet of wine. The margin in verse 1 says it's a banquet of drinking. And Sunday by Sunday, brothers and sisters, we come, don't we, to a banquet of wine. We come to a table that has three characters around it. Our king, symbolized in the bread and wine, We ourselves, as Esther, the bride of Christ, are there, and inside us lurks the diabolical Haman. And we come to share wine. And the question that we ask ourselves every Sunday morning is, whose side are we on? Because every Sunday morning is like a day of reckoning, just like this feast. It's a day of great decision, and we need to make make ourselves clear as to whose side are we on. Well, we read in verse 2 that this is the second day of the banquet. What does it mean when it says it's the second day of the banquet? Well, we understand that the first day was chapter 5, verses 5 to 8, the previous day, the first banquet of wine. Now we come to the second day. And so now, as we saw last time, this is the day of the resurrection, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ being revealed as the perfect manifestation of the Father, risen from the dead. And on this day, the day of the resurrection, the power of sin is going to be absolutely revealed for what it is, and on the same day, absolutely destroyed. And so the atmosphere is tense. And the king asks the question which he's been dying to know the answer to all night. Why are we here, Esther? What is thy petition, Queen Esther? What is it that you want? You know, this in type is the, is the question of Psalm 2 and verse 8. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. What is thy petition, O Esther? And what is thy request? And in verse 3... Esther blurts out her true feelings that have been bottled up for days. It's a passionate request. And Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. You know, I think there's an important lesson here because... The king had asked her, what is thy petition? And Esther's answer is, verse 3, my life. The king had asked her, what is thy request? And Esther's answer is, my people. And the answers are really one. They are exactly the same. Because Esther is so totally bound up in the affairs of her people And her people have all been fervently fasting and praying for her that the petition and the request are one. And you know, brothers and sisters, just right there is one of the great secrets of the truth. We save ourselves, our life, as it were, 
by being absolutely bound up in the lives of our brothers and sisters, by concentrating on saving our people. And Esther's petition and request were one. She didn't say, save me, O king. And, well, if there's any mercy left, maybe you can save some of my people. No. Esther and her people are one. They're going to be saved together. They're in this problem together, and they're going to be saved together. We don't come, do we, brothers and sisters, week by week to ask that we might be saved. We come, or at least we should, to ask that everyone who does God's will, who reflects his glory, might be saved. And Esther was inextricably linked with her people, with her brothers and sisters. But you know, brothers and sisters, there's another dimension to this story. Because if Esther represents for us the bride of Christ, the redeemed by faith, the Gentile bride who has called herself, or or has been called at least out of the nations and given the gospel by grace and favor, not by law, then here is another lesson that Esther's fate is inextricably linked with the fate of the Jews. Only the bride stood between Israel and death. Now I want you to come to Romans because Paul puts this so much better than any of us can. And in Romans chapter 5, he says these words, and I want to just put a couple of quotations in Romans together, and I think you'll see the point. Because we're talking today about our salvation from sin and death. And Romans 5 is just about that. And we read in Romans 5 and verse 10 these famous words. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, this is how it works. When we get baptized, brothers and sisters, we say, don't we, that the flesh profits nothing. And when we go down into the waters of baptism, we say that the old man of the flesh must be drowned to death. And God says, I agree. And we are reconciled to God. We agree when we go down into the waters of baptism and we're under the water. We agree that we should be dead. And God says, I agree, we're reconciled. But under the water, brothers and sisters, there is no life. We are only saved when we come up out of the waters of baptism. We are only saved by his life. Reconciled, but saved by his life. Now come to Romans chapter 11 and verse 15. Because all of us are clear with that in Romans 5. We understand that and have since the day of our baptism. But look what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 15, talking about the Jews, the fate of the nation of Israel. For, and look how similar this language is in Romans 11, verse 15, for if the casting away of the Jews be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but Life from the dead. And brothers and sisters, look how those two references go side by side. You know what that's saying to us? That's saying that unless the nation of Israel is resurrected and saved, there cannot be life from the dead. Our our fate is inextricably bound up with the Jews. And Esther's attitude... The bride's attitude to that nation is going to be vital in this story. We're grafted into the hope of Israel. We are Abraham's seed, as it were. And if they can't, the natural nation of Israel can't be saved as a people, then we cannot be saved either. And so so Esther stands alongside those people as well, doesn't she, in the type, bound up with their lives. 
And you know, brothers and sisters, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes, it's going to be exactly like that. We are going to be the saints, the bride of Christ, immortalized by God. And we are going to go out and fight on God's behalf to redeem the Jews right out of the hands of Gog, the latter-day manifestation of Haman, the Agagite. And just when, when deliverance seems hopeless for the Jews, when it seems destined that Gog will have power, the bride, the saints, will step forward and plead for the people of Israel. Our lives are bound up with that people. And Esther didn't see herself as somebody different, did she, brothers and sisters? She saw her life inextricably tied up with not just her brothers and sisters, but the people of Israel. We are sold, she says back in chapter 7 and verse 4. We are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. And now the veil is lifted from the identity of one of the two characters at the king's table. Esther, she says, I'm a Jewess. She was part of the people that had been sold. And haven't we all, brothers and sisters, been sold under sin, as Paul puts it so well in Romans 7, verse 14. We are all of us slaves to sin and death, destined to die to be destroyed, to perish. And see how flawlessly Esther quotes from the very decree of Haman in chapter 3 and verse 13. It had been indelibly etched onto her memory. See the margin? We are sold that they should destroy and kill and cause us to perish. With a quaver in her voice, she repeats Haman's exact words looking straight in his eye across the table. You can just imagine brothers and sisters Haman looking more and more uncomfortable, squirming in his seat. His face is flushing red. Cold sweat is running down his back. His heart is beating right out of his chest. His mouth's gone dry. And the bold, brazen, audacious Haman is gone. And all that's left, brothers and sisters, is a lily-livered, cowardly, spineless Amalekite. You know, he was hoping desperately, wasn't it, that he was hoping desperately that the king might have a slight memory lapse and fail to remember the decree that he'd signed just about four days earlier at Haman's instigation. But now that he looks across at the king... He can see in the king's face that the penny is beginning to drop. We've been sold out, O king, says Esther. But if we'd just been sold as slaves, as captive laborers, I might have submitted to God's will. But, O king, we've been sold to death. And if we die, the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. What did Haman, the Jews enemy said. Well, back in chapter 3, verse 8, he'd said, O king, O king, live forever. There is a certain people in your kingdom, and it is not profitable for you to keep them, to suffer them to live. And now Esther says, it's a lie. Haman is wrong. The Revised Standard Version says, our affliction is not to be compared to the loss of the king. The revised version has, the king could not be compensated. Because, brothers and sisters, the Jews were the backbone of the Persian economy. And Esther is saying the enemy is wrong. He was deliberately deceitful when he said that it is not profitable to keep them alive. He shamelessly misled you when he said he could reimburse the king's treasuries for their loss. The truth is, O king, that these people are invaluable. It would be impossible to calculate their loss. And it's true, brothers and sisters, isn't it? 
if we think about just the blood of Mordecai alone, that was priceless. In First of Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is more precious than corruptible gold and silver. You couldn't just pay for the lives of Mordecai and the Jews. They were incalculably valuable. And as the king looks across the table at his beautiful bride, he could see the plain truth of those words. If he lost that woman alone, that would be a disaster. You think about it, brothers and sisters, in the type, how true it is. If Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews were to be destroyed by Haman, there simply is going to be nothing left of the empire of Ahasuerus. His whole realm rested on these three groups, the queen, the faithful servants like Mordecai, and the Jews. These three groups were the glue that was holding the kingdom together. And how true is it, brothers and sisters, if in the purpose of God we took out our Lord Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel, and the bride of Christ. There isn't anything left. Those three groups are priceless to God's purpose. And the king suddenly realized the truth of Esther's words. He'd come so close, heavenly brothers and sisters, to losing everything that he held dear, deceived almost by King Sin, as it were. He'd been intentionally deceived. And he was just a hair's breadth away from losing everything. And his blood begins to boil. The king is furious. And we read in verse 5, Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? And where is he? That durst presume in his heart to do so. Literally it means he threatened and said. He's incensed that the life of his queen could be endangered in the lives of her people, and it has happened right under his nose. Who would dare to do such a thing? Just imagine poor Haman now. If he was scared by Esther's words, imagine the roar of the king, shrinking down a little more into his chair. Now he's beginning to sweat from every pore. You know, brothers and sisters, I don't think that the king was so obtuse that he couldn't remember what he'd signed just four days before. And he couldn't get Esther's obvious allusion to Haman's decree. I don't think the king was that silly. I think what he's clearly trying to do is pretend innocence so that he can express righteous anger before the enemy's identity is revealed. He wants to set the scene so that whoever it is, and he knows it will be Haman, is already set for extreme punishment. Who would dare presume to do such a thing? He's setting the scene so that Haman cannot escape his wrath when it does fall. And this kind of wrath, brothers and sisters, is only going to be satisfied with an execution. See what the margin says? whose heart has filled him with a desire to do a thing like that. Who has a heart that that is that black, asks the king. And only one man had a heart like that. Back in chapter 5, verse 9, it tells us that Haman had a heart that was full of indignation, of hatred towards Mordecai. Who's got a heart like that? Only one man, Haman the Agagite, the man who was born to hate. And so the time for the denouncement of King Sin had come. And Esther, that that lovely, gracious queen, summoned all her inward strength and used the strongest possible terms that she could possibly think of. And Esther said, verse 6, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Literally, the words mean the oppressor, the man whose heart is capable of such unbounded hate, is this intrinsically evil Haman. 
and it's all out in the open. The king didn't need to set up a judicial tribunal. He didn't need to set up an independent investigation, a committee of inquiry to see whether Esther was telling the truth. It was written all over Haman's face. Every sweating poor is just crying out, guilty! And he was afraid before the king and queen. Literally, it means that he was petrified with terror. And he realized, didn't he, brothers and sisters, all too late that sitting around that table, there were only three people. And now, two of them, the king and the queen, are one. They're deeply in love. They're inseparably linked to each other. And suddenly Haman feels terribly, terribly alone. He had completely misread the relationship of the king to the queen. He would completely misread the intimacy of Ahasuerus for his wife. And now they stood as one, the queen shaking from relief that it's all over, and the king shaking from white-hot rage. And see what the margin says? Haman was afraid at the presence, or literally the face of the king. He could see written all over the king's face, the verdict even before the trial began. The Jew's enemy was now the king's enemy. And you know, it says in Proverbs 16, verses 14 to 15, the wrath of a king is as messengers of death. And however powerful Haman thought he was, in this moment of truth, he suddenly realized, didn't he, that all the power that he'd once had was given to him by the king. All the power that he thought he had in the empire, making people bow down to him, was delegated authority. And just like that, God took all of it back and revealed in this story is not just Esther, not just the king's diabolos, but now we have the rise, the revelation of the king himself. And just like that, he takes from Haman all the power back and says, thank you very much, but I am the king. And overcome with emotion in verse 7, the king stormed out of the garden. He was clearly still in control of the whole situation and felt happy to leave it like that, but he could not, he could not stay in that room. And is there any wonder, brothers and sisters, overcome with emotion? He's struggling to take in not just what he's been told, but the consequences of what he's been told. You know, it was, one, it was bad enough, wasn't it, to, to try and grasp the enormity of the crime, to try and grasp the audacity of Haman, that he, he was trying to, under the very king's nose, massacre all the Jews. But what about the massive implications of what Haman's already done? The law that cannot be changed. And the king was overcome and he went out in his wrath. You know, I want you to come to Psalm 21 because probably in this psalm we have revealed for us the attitude of the king. He was wroth. He was furious. And look what it says in Psalm 21 verse, verse 8. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand, Mordecai, shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. Yahweh shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. For they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Be thou exalted, Yahweh, in thine own strength. So will we sing and praise thy power. In this chapter about the king, we have the king's fury and wrath at finding out that someone has intended evil against him. 
and he storms out into the garden. He wants to control his emotions. And so with the fury of the king removed, Haman falls before Esther to plead for his life. Maybe he thinks he could use his charms to touch Esther's heart, to convince her that it was, it was all just a big mistake. I, I really didn't mean it, Esther, truly. To throw himself on her mercy. It's so typical of Haman the Agagite. He's a coward like all the Amalekites were before him. And when he was a big shot, he would rant and rave about exterminating all those filthy Jews. He couldn't stand the sight of their moving shadows. But now that he's exposed and frightened, now that he is in the limelight, now that his life's on the line, he's not above begging for his life from a Jew. This man has absolutely no spine or shame, no moral scruples, whatever. He'd parade Mordecai to grease up to the king and he'd beg for his life from a Jewess, no less. But he could see, couldn't he, the unmistakable look in the eye of Ahasuerus. Evil was determined against him by the king. And King Sin, brothers and sisters, was finally going to collect his paycheck Along with all the bonuses, sin cannot bring life. And Esther was unmoved. And so in verse 8, as the king returned, he's confronted by Haman fallen on the Persian sofa where Esther was. Then the king returned, it says in verse 8, out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. And Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? And the word, and as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You know, I don't think that the king suspected any impropriety from Haman. The word simply means to humiliate, to humiliate or subject to despisement. And this king of all kings knew exactly what that felt like, didn't he? Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 17 when Vashti, Vashti despised and humiliated him in front of all the world? This king knew exactly what that felt like and I think that the king is taxing Haman with yet another crime. After attempting to murder her, are you going to grovel and humiliate my wife as well? And if he thought he could wriggle out of the previous crime, Brothers and sisters, now it was obvious that it was all over. And as if on cue, as the words went out of the king's mouth, an angel stepped forward and covered the face of Haman. King Sin is now finished. Now apparently it was customary for the Macedonians and the Romans to muffle the heads of their prisoners before they executed them. And maybe that custom has its origins here in the Persian Empire. But certainly it's true, isn't it, that Haman, from this moment on, is never going to see the light of day again. Darkness enshrouds the power of sin. It's all over. As Jeremiah 13 verse 16 says, Give glory to Yahweh your God before he cause darkness And before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains, and while you look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Jeremiah 13 and verse 16. And no sooner had Haman had his head covered than Harbona comes forward in verse 9 and offers a solution. The angels have been working, haven't they, brothers and sisters, at perfecting this story for centuries and they know exactly where Haman needs to go. No stone is left unturned. Nothing is left to chance. And Harbona says, verse 9, Behold also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman has made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, stands in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. And so Haman The Jew's enemy is crucified on the very tree meant for Mordecai. On the very day of the resurrection, 
the process of destroying the power of King Sin is now brought to a glorious finale. And on the tree is now nailed King Sin, his power completely vanquished by the power of a perfect life, the life of a man who never bowed to sin once. And there was nowhere more appropriate, brothers and sisters, nowhere more ironic, nowhere more poetic than that Haman be hanged on that tree. And the king said, hang him thereon. Look at this, the poetic justice of God. Three references from the Psalms. Psalm 9 and verse 16. Yahweh is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Psalm 10 and verse 2. The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices which they have imagined. Psalm 141 verse 10. Let the wicked fall into their own nets whilst that I with all escape. And Haman was going to be snared in the work of his own hands, taken in his own device, and fall into his own net. And as Haman swung in the breeze, brothers and sisters, never was it more true that the wicked was taken in the very pit or trap that they had dug for the righteous. And so we read in verse 10, They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Three references, not from the Psalms, but from the Proverbs about the king's wrath. Proverbs 16 and verse 14, The wrath of a king is as messengers of death, but a wise man will pacify it. That certainly was not Haman. Proverbs 19, verse 12. The king's wrath is as the roaring of a lion. Proverbs 20, and verse 2. The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. And so, brothers and sisters, after a life of slimy ladder climbing, after a brief period of glorious authority in what seemed like absolute dominion over all the subjects of Ahasuerus' realm. After a short time when sin seemed to almost reign supreme, Haman the Agagite, the Diabolos, the Jews and the king's enemy, proved entirely dispensable. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, was no more. And I want to finish this morning, brothers and sisters, by just looking at the first couple of verses of chapter 8, because they really conclude our story today. You know, something that really struck me as I finished this study was the fact that from chapter 3, verse 12, through to chapter 8, verse 2, the very heart and soul of this book all takes place on just four days. Did you know that? The heart and soul of this book just takes four days. The first couple of chapters uh, talk about a few years in time. Then chapters three to eight takes just four days, and then there's a couple of chapters to finish. But those four days are the most important four days in the history of the world. The four days that surround the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find in this drama that in chapter 8 and verse 1, we're told, on that day, we're still on the same day as chapter 7, did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jew's enemy unto Esther the queen? It's the same day, the same day that started early in the morning with the king opening the history books. It saw Mordecai raised from the dead paraded through the city as the representation of God. It saw the complete destruction over the power of sin. And now, this day of the resurrection is going to see, verse 1 says, the giving of the house of Haman unto Esther the queen. You know, brothers and sisters, this is marvelous. The bride of Christ has been promised 
the world. And so it was appropriate that Esther was given all of the wealth of Haman. And we know in the case of Haman that that was not inconsiderable. This is what it says elsewhere in the Bible about what the bride has been promised. We've been given the whole world, brothers and sisters. Isaiah 61 and verse 6. But ye shall be named the priests of Yahweh. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. Daniel 7 and verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom, even forever and ever. And 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, reading from the New English Bible. In our sorrows, we have always cause for joy. Poor ourselves, we bring wealth to many. Penniless, we own the world. And brothers and sisters, we are the bride of Christ. And we will be given all of the wealth of Haman. We're going to be given all the world, brothers and sisters, at that time. And then we have some very significant words in chapter 8 and verse 1. And Mordecai came before the king. Now, I said to you at the start of the week that all of you are going to be astounded by the type, and, and I am about 99.5% sure that as I read those words, all of you know exactly what that is a type of. Mordecai came before the king. There's no record or indication in the story that before this, Mordecai has seen or met the king before. And this is clearly in type the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father after the complete victory over sin has been sealed by his resurrection from the dead. And what a moment it was. Mordecai came before the king. What a meeting that must have been, brothers and sisters. You know, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Our, our Lord Jesus Christ being brought before the throne of God in heaven and taking his seat at God's right hand. But you know, brothers and sisters, I think there's an important lesson here for us because, you know, if it is true, as we've said from chapter 1, verse 14, that nobody saw the king's face, then how amazing is it that Mordecai is now able to come in before the presence of the king? He's not from a royal Persian family. He's not, from a, he's not a stately Persian prince, back as, it, as it was back in chapter 1, verse 14. He wasn't born into a royal family. He was a Jewish captive. And yet he came before the king. And the lesson is clear, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter what our personal lineage or background is. It doesn't matter what our heritage is or who our parents are. We can all come before the face of the king if we're prepared to be one of his faithful servants and reflect his glory. And now Mordecai is revealed for who he really is. Esther had told what he was unto her. Since Mordecai has been advanced on his own merits, now Esther feels able to reveal the close relationship that always has been between herself and this faithful man. And so from this moment on, Mordecai is going to take on the role of Esther's husband. Now that, now that he's been revealed in chapter 6 as the perfect manifestation of God himself, Mordecai now in type becomes the husband of the bride. And we read in chapter 8 verse 2, the king took off his ring which he had taken from Haman and gave it under Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And the king now divulges not only his position as husband, but all authority in the, in the symbol of the ring of the kingdom and gives it to Mordecai. Where before Haman had controlled the ring and sin had ruled the world, now the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ and he has control over them. Not openly, of course, 
But in heaven above, he rules in the kingdoms of men. 1 Peter 3, verse 22, Jesus Christ has gone to heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers being made subject unto him. And Mordecai types perfectly our Lord Jesus Christ coming before the king in heaven. He had been trustworthy over a few things, and now he is made Lord over many things. Now, I want to take just a couple of minutes to show you, because we've kind of, uh, if you like, finished the type of the three-day fast of Mordecai, just show you by way of of a diagram on the screen how this three-day fast works, because I think it's quite impressive. So at the top of the screen, we have the days of Abib, starting from the 13th, and we're going to take it through to the 18th. And just so we're clear, the uh, symbol that looks like a moon stands for night, and the one that looks like a sun stands for day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So here we go. We started out on the 13th day of the first month, with Haman's decree, the 13th of Abib. Later that day, Shushan was perplexed. Chapter 3, verse 15. Early the next morning, Mordecai is found, 9 o'clock in the morning, on the cross, crying with a loud voice outside the king's gate. Remember we saw that. That's our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross. But he would not receive the myrrh, He would not receive the clothes which Esther sent. So he's there 9 o'clock in the morning on the 14th day of Abib in the type. Morning, distressed on the cross, all the weight of the world on his shoulders. And then later that day, starting at 3 o'clock, when uh, when, uh, our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ was buried in the tomb, sometime between 3 o'clock and six o'clock that night on the 14th day of Abib, Mordecai starts his three-day fast. Well, Esther comes in before the king in chapter 5, verse 1, on the third day. That's going to be the 16th of Abib. Esther's first banquet, chapter 5, verse 6 to, six to 8, is the same day. And you'll remember that while that banquet takes place, Mordecai was still dead. Because as Haman comes out, and goes past Mordecai, he didn't even move. He didn't twitch a muscle because he's still dead in type. The king can't sleep, chapter 6, verse 1. We're now getting to the night of the 17th. It's early morning. The king knows that in just a few hours, our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be raised from the dead. And so if we move Mordecai's three-day fast up to the top, and have a look at the finish of our story, we find that 5 o'clock in the morning, in chapter 6, verse 11, on the 17th day of Abib, Mordecai is resurrected from obscurity and death and paraded before all the world as the representation of God. Esther's second banquet happens straight after. They hasted Haman while he was yet speaking to his wife and friends to Esther's second banquet. Haman is hung, chapter 7, verse 10, and now Mordecai ascends to meet the Father in the heaven above. All of that happens on the 17th day of Abib. You know, brothers and sisters, the Jews call the book of Esther the volume. The volume of Esther. And look what it says in Hebrews Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And if it is true, brothers and sisters, that all the volume of the Old Testament spoke of what Christ was going to do, then surely, as we've seen, it must speak of the volume of Esther, which marvelously types all these things. And so now let's conclude by looking at our lesson for today. And our lesson is the lesson of love. Because the veil is drawn back on our three characters today. And we saw, didn't we, the intimate love that Ahasuerus had for his bride. The deep love that he had for that woman. And look what it says in just a couple of references about love. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, 
but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And just when you thought that the situation was desperate, love never fails. 1 John 4, verse 18 to 19. And you can imagine Esther saying these words after the event. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You know, brothers and sisters, we talk a lot about the love that God has for us. But I want to think as we finish this morning about the love that we should have for our king. Because we have to love him. We can't love him without knowing him. And now is the time for us to get to know our king. Because when he comes, brothers and sisters, and he appears at the other end of the temple, maybe he'll recognize us, but we certainly want to recognize him. And we're not ever going to do that unless we have built up in our minds a picture of him and of his love. Because our God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For our God, finally, brothers and sisters, at the end of the story, is love.